Holy One, when your prophets speak justice by the Spirit, the powerless clap their hands. When your Son declares forgiveness, sinners cry tears of joy. By the power of your Holy Spirit, open our ears to your word and move our hearts to respond in ways that honor you. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So many of you know that uh, I'm what they call a second career pastor, meaning that I spent a lot of time uh, in the working world, uh, the secular world, before I went to seminary in my 40s. But also in that period of time before I went to seminary and came to uh, be a, a church professional, um, I spent a lot of time in church. I grew up in the, in the Episcopal Church in St. Paul's uh, Episcopal Church in Fayetteville, Arkansas. I went to uh, Mom and Dad didn't go to church, but my grandparents went to church, and they would pick me up every weekend and, and take me to church with them. And then as a young adult, uh, I spent a lot of time kind of drifting around uh, in Methodist churches and independent churches. And then, you know, finally I married a good, faithful Presbyterian, and she brought me to the light. <laughs> and uh, we, uh, we joined J.J. Uh, White Memorial Presbyterian Church in Macomb, Mississippi, and uh, a great church with a great uh, heart for missions, and it, it really started me on, on the trail uh, to seminary and, and, and church leadership. Um, but I would say if I look back at that time period uh, of mine, um, I was what I would call a, a New Testament Christian. I, I spent most of my time in, in, in my own personal reading or in studies that I went to, and really most of the sermons I heard uh, were from the New Testament. Um, I had not really spent a lot of time uh, in, the Old in the Old Testament. I mean, I knew the stories. I knew the creation story, and I knew, uh, you know, Noah and the ark, and um, uh, David and Goliath, you know, all those stories I read when I was a kid and all those children's books. But, but I didn't have a good appreciation for the Old Testament really till I got to seminary and began to really study uh, those books. And, and really, uh, it really opened my heart to some great wisdom and uh, some, great, some great lessons. So if, if that's kind of maybe where you are, uh, this, this sermon's for you. We're going we're gonna to delve into the Old Testament so I want to kind of set this reading up. This is a, a reading from 1 Kings. Uh, 1 Kings and 2 Kings are in the Old Testament. Originally, that was probably one book or one scroll uh, called Kings. And it was really about the, uh, the rule of the kings over uh, the Holy Land um, uh, during that time, starting with, um, with Saul and then King David. King David was the, was the great king of all the kings. And then Solomon, his son, and then... You know, after that, it kind of went downhill, and, uh, you know, bad things began to happen, and the kings began to do evil in God's sight, and eventually the Holy Land was just destroyed and, and taken over, and people were taken into captivity and taken to Babylon. So, um, so this writing is kind of looking back at those kings who were mostly bad, and, uh, um, and the worst king was Ahab. Uh, in 1 Kings 16, it says of Ahab, Ahab was the son of Omri. He did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And then a little bit later, it says, Ahab did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than had all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now, that's not a really great way to live out your life, right? That uh, it's written in the Bible that you are just the worst king that's ever been. And then Ahab had a wife. And her name is Jezebel. Now, many of you know that word, know that name, and it doesn't have a great connotation to it. 
I mean, can you imagine if your name carried on through the centuries into the future of something that is not good, something that's not uh, right and just? Um, so 1 Kings 21 says, There was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he was urged on by his wife Jezebel. And then we have the prophet Elijah. Um, Elijah is described in Scripture as someone who heard the word of God and did what God told him to do. Elijah, if you'll remember, when the disciples are in the transfiguration, which we'll hear at the end of the month, uh, when they're with Jesus and they're up on that mountain and Jesus is transformed, who do they see but Moses and Elijah with Jesus up there? So that's the setup of the characters, most of the main people in this story. I'm going to be reading 1 Kings chapter 21, 1 through 21, and I'll be reading from the message, uh, which is Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the Bible. Naboth, the Jezreelite, owned a vineyard in Jezreel that bordered the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. One day Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard so I can use it as a kitchen garden. It's right next to my house. It's so convenient for me. In exchange, I'll give you a far better vineyard, and if you'd prefer, I'll even pay you money for it. But Naboth told Ahab, not on your life. So help me, God, I'd never sell my family farm to you. And Ahab went home in a black mood. He was sulking. He was angry over Naboth the Jezreelite's words. I'll never turn over my family inheritance to you. So Ahab went to bed. He stuffed his face in his pillow, and he even refused to eat. Jezebel, his wife, came to him, and she said, What's going on with you? Why are you so out of sorts and refusing to eat? So he told her what happened. It's because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and I said, give me your vineyard. I'll pay you for it. Or if you'd rather, I'll give you another vineyard in exchange. And he said to me, I'll never give you my vineyard. Well, Jezebel said, this is, this is not a way for a king of Israel to act. Aren't you the boss? Get on your feet. Get something to eat. Cheer up. I'll take care of this. I'll get the vineyard of this Naboth, the Jezreelite, for you. So she wrote letters over Ahab's signature stamped with his official seal and sent them to the elders in Naboth's city and to the civic leaders of his town. She wrote, call for a fast day, a, feast, a, a fast day for them to gather and fast together and put Naboth up at the head table and then seat a couple of stool pigeons close to him. And in front of everybody, this is what they're to say. They'll point at Ahab and shout, you, the blasphemer, you have blasphemed God and the king. And then they'll throw him out and stone him to death. And sure enough, that's what they did. The men of the city, the elders, and the civic leaders followed Jezebel's instructions to a T, what she had wrote to them in the letter. They called for a fast day and seated Naboth at the head of the table, and then they brought in two stool pigeons and seated them opposite Naboth. In front of everybody, the two degenerates accused him. He blasphemed God and the king, and the whole company threw him out in the street and stoned him mercilessly until he died. When Jezebel got word that Naboth had been stoned to death, she told Ahab, 
Go, go, Ahab, take your vineyard. Naboth the Jezreelite is dead. The vineyard is yours. Naboth is no more. So the minute Ahab heard this, he took off to the vineyard that Naboth the Jezreelite, and he claimed it for his own. Then God stepped in, and he spoke to Elijah the Tishbite. On your feet, go down and confront this Ahab of Samaria, king of Israel. You'll find him in the vineyard of Naboth. He's gone there to claim it as his own. And you're to say to him, tell him God's word. What's going on here? First a murder and then a theft. And then you tell him God's verdict. The very spot where the dogs lapped up Naboth's blood. They'll lap up your blood. That's right, your blood. So Ahab answered Elijah, my enemy, you've run me down. Yes, I found you out, says Elijah. And because you brought into this business of evil and defying God, I will most certainly bring doom upon you, make mincemeat of your descendants, kill off every sorry male wretch who's ever remotely connected with the name of Ahab, and I'll bring down on you the same fate that fell Jeroboam, son of Nebate, and Beha, son of Aijah. You've made me that angry to ma in making Israel sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Mm, thanks be to God. You know, in my mind, after reading that text, it wouldn't take a whole lot to modernize that, would it? It's pretty relevant. People of influence, of power, taking advantage of people without wealth or the wherewithal to defend themselves. There's not a day goes by that that scenario seems to not play out locally, nationally, and internationally. I wonder if you're like me when you pick up the newspaper or open up my tablet to look at the news. I, I kind of hold it out like that a little bit because I don't want what's in there to splatter on me and maybe leave a stain on my clothes. It's just awful. The news is bad. The world, it seems, has spun completely out of control. What was good is now bad, and what was bad is now good. Some might wonder, where is God? Where is God in all of this? So here's my thesis statement for the two texts that we've heard read today. We serve a God who sees and cares about the world and intervenes in human affairs, who steps into the muck and the mire of earthly sin and sets things right to fulfill God's purpose. Now, for some of us, that statement might make us a bit uncomfortable. We want to keep God in a nice, tidy little box, maybe keep him trapped in this room. Certainly, God doesn't want to slip out into my little part of the world and mess things up. Yep, Scripture is filled with such interventions. In fact, I think I stand on firm theological ground when I say that the Bible is really a story of God continually stepping into or being active in our human experience. Now, part of that human experience is pain, evil, loss. 
Yes, my friends, I hate to break it to you, but there is evil in this world. People, as hard as they try to do what is good and right, we all fall short. We all fall short in sin, and sometimes when that happens, bad things happen. Bad things happen to good people. Now, all of us at one time or another have wrestled with God. I certainly have. Maybe some of you are even wrestling this morning. I'll tell you, it's a loser's battle. We may temporarily thwart God's will for us or for humanity itself, but ultimately, God acts to set things right. So I tell you all this to remind us all of the world that we live in, a world where many people in positions of leadership are working frantically for their own personal gain, for greed, for personal pleasure, for personal profit. We are not as far away from the world of Ahab and Jezebel and Naboth as we might think. But God, as God tends to do, steps in when humans veer far off God's intended plan. And that, my friends, is what we call hope. As I studied this text over the last couple of weeks and the, this whole idea of God stepping into our lives, I just kept wondering why. Why did God really care about Naboth? What was really the big deal about this little vineyard in a faraway place? Or in our New Testament reading, why would Jesus care about these people who had fallen into sin? And the word that leapt into my mind was stewardship. Now, I know you might be thinking for a minute, well, it's a little early for that. Stewardship season is in the fall, or don't get too carried away, Pastor. But stewardship is so much more than putting money in an envelope. A steward, by definition, is someone who looks after something that belongs to someone else. And it also implicates that the steward loves and cares for this thing under his or her care as much as the owner does. Stewardship is about a relationship with the owner. Stewardship is about our heart. Where is our heart? So just as the sinful woman who anointed Jesus' feet turned her heart and her focus towards Jesus... So was Naboth's heart turned towards God. And when the evil Jezebel took matters into her own hands, God stepped in through the voice of Elijah the prophet. The king wanted that land. He wanted it bad. But Naboth knew, and the king also knew, that it was forbidden. God's law forbade the selling of family land to a non-family member. It was Naboth's family inheritance so in Numbers chapter 36, verse 7, it says this, No inheritance, no inheritance meaning the land that you own, no inheritance in Israel is to pass from tribe to tribe. For every Israelite shall keep the tribal land inherited from their forefathers. My Old Testament professor in seminary was Walter Brueggemann. And Walter would tell you that the breadth of the Old Testament is about one thing. It's about the land. It's about the land. 
that God gave God's people. And I tell you, as a farm boy myself, I get that. I get the importance of that soil, that land that your ancestors have held. Now, the basis of this law, this law that we find in Numbers, was the how and the why that you handled your family members who maybe had fallen into rough times. That was the purpose of the law. If something happened, if something happened to a family member, uh, the next able-bodied kin would step in and purchase the land and keep the land within the family, but also help out the family member who might be in need. That land was your ticket to survival. This is how God intended the world to work, that we look after each other, that we are compassionate for each other, even for those in hard times. So let's take a minute and talk about the law, because the law to the ancient Jew and to you and me is a bit different. The function of our modern law is to govern the relationships between people, between each other, and maybe between an institution. Our laws have nothing to do with our relationship with God. They're just laws, plain and simple. The speed limit is 45 miles an hour. That's a law. But for the ancient Jews, the opposite was true. In their way of thinking, obedience to the law brought you into a right relationship with God and made you acceptable in God's sight. And being right with God was the most important thing in your life. Everything else in your life flowed from the beginning, which was your relationship with God. Now, unfortunately, the Jews, especially the Pharisees, got a little off track And the law that they followed, the law became what they began to worship. And it took God stepping in, in the flesh, to set things straight. Christ came not to replace the law, but to fulfill it. Christ came to take the law out of of a book or a scroll and to place it in people's hearts. Jesus Christ was a physical intervention into the human reality. And we can easily fall into that same trap. We try to keep doing good work so God will recognize us. We stay overly committed and busy and so focused on ourselves that we don't recognize what God is doing around us and in us to change our hardened hearts. It's almost like the small children that were just in here, you know, with their hands raised, pick me, pick me, overshadowing and ignoring others around us elbowing them out to make sure that we're first, that God sees us first. The key for us is to get in tune with God and how God is working in the world, being a good steward of what God has blessed us with. Naboth was right with God. Even though he was pressured and manipulated by outside forces, Naboth stood strong and remained faithful to God to the very end. So you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's a great story, but they still drug him out and stoned him to death at the end. Yeah, they did. But for Naboth, his treasure was in heaven. For God is ever-present in our lives. And how our part, how we play our part in God's story sometimes isn't revealed until the last act. 
So just as Ahab was about to claim his ill-gotten gains, God stepped in through the prophet Elijah. Elijah forcefully opposed the royal practice of injustice and the arrogant use of power against a weaker member of society. Injustice is not simply an offense against humanity, but it is an offense against God as well. God stepped in on behalf of the slain Naboth, his faithful steward. Now, my friends, believe me when I say the truth will win out. Unjust powers will not have the last word in this broken and sinful world. Though innocent people may suffer and die, God still speaks through prophecies and through prophetic voices today. We just have to listen. We just have to listen a little better and look for how God is at work in and around us in our community and in the world. God's promise to us is to never leave us or forsake us. A story repeated over and over again in the Bible is God's willingness to step into the lives of the broken and downtrodden, to correct injustice, to spiritually free demon-possessed, instruct the disciples, and bring healing to the lost. Though we may despair over pain and an unjust in our an injustice in our world, we can trust that God sees what is happening and is working through God's people to bring justice and to set things right. God is indeed the God who sees and set things right. We humans may temporarily usurp and thwart the just purposes of God, but in the end, God's will prevails. May we in our lives be God's instrument of justice and peace in the world today. Amen. Thank you.